Well, my name is Jeff, if we haven't had the chance or the privilege to meet yet, but I'm excited to be with you this morning. And we're journeying through the book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to talk about kings, uh, kingship, a different kind of king. And I was like just thinking this week, how do, how do I get into this idea of kingship? Have, I don't have a lot of experience with kings. Have I ever been a king? I don't know. I was like, you know what? I, I kind of was dubbed a king once, actually. Uh, my senior year of high school, I have proof. So on the basketball team, and the cheerleaders made these signs, and mine said right there in the middle, king of the court, Knit," that hung in our gymnasium all season long. I was the king of the court. So I thought I would give you, I've tried through the years actually now, I've probably given you a few of my stories that build my legacy for how I became king of the court. Uh, I don't think I've shared this one with you before. Some of you know my illustrious high school basketball career. I think I started one season. The other three seasons, I came in off the bench. My freshman year was no different. We had 15 guys on the team, so we didn't all play every game. And we were playing a, a, a league rival kind of game, and I, I, think, I think we, I don't even remember. I think we won. I'm not sure. I just remember I sat on the bench the whole game, didn't play at all, like only like moved during warm-ups. And I, I think we were winning because I think one of our players got fouled. The game was finally like just, we, it was clear that the game was pretty much over and there was 1.6 seconds left on the clock. And there's a foul and coach looks down the bench and anybody want to, I was like, I'll go in. I mean, I've been sitting there, put me in the game, coach. So I go, I mean, if you're at the free throw line, if this, the basket's here, you know, I'm, my, my teammate's shooting. So there's a guy from the other team here and I'm here. And he shoots, and he totally bricks it, just, just hits the rim and fires off. But my cat-like reflexes, I just turn, and I catch the ball like this. I know there's 1.6 seconds left. And mind you, I'm right-handed. But with my left hand, I throw the ball up over my head. It hits the backboard and goes in as time expires. You can clap. Yes, you can clap. But... I just want to explain my legacy. I literally had a game in high school where I averaged more than a point per second. Every .8 seconds I was on the floor, I was scoring a point that game. I just want you to appreciate how I became king of the court, and I think, I think you see it. I think you see it now. You may have great questions for my coach, but that's for another day. We're in the series in Deuteronomy, and we've been trying to journey through this three sections. There's Deuteronomy chapters 1 to 11. There's Deuteronomy chapters 12 to 26, which is what we're in right now. Um, we're in it today, and maybe next week I was just telling somebody, I'm ready to get into the third. The third section preaches really well. <laughs> this second section is all law code, and so it's, it's, it's a different, I, I mean... I was worried about last week, but I got a lot of really good feedback. I actually think it was helpful, but it's just, it's just a difficult section to preach through. But part of what I've been trying to do as we've been in this part of Deuteronomy is, Deuteronomy is spark your interest in the law. It's probably not the place you turn to. Like, you probably never turn to the law like, oh, I just need encouragement. Let's just open up Deuteronomy 15 and see. You know, like you just, it's just not generally what happens, but I've been trying to give you some handles or for some ways to, to, to be curious about what's going on. Some of what you have to do to read an ancient Near Eastern law is to do some time travel. You don't need to do that alone. You can do that in community. We'll even have 
We should be reading this in community. We'll even have a biblical verse that kind of even points us to that in a few minutes. But but I was thinking, it is interesting. I, I kind of like to get outside of my culture and think about what it would be like to live in a time when it was technologically different and socially different and judiciously different and economically different. It's just that everything's different. I've had the privilege a few times on mission trips to travel to parts of Kenya where there's no electricity and no running water. It feels like time travel. And as I've talked to the people and gotten to know them, I like, I, I, they don't have savings accounts. <laughs> They don't, they don't, they don't, are you ready for this? They don't have any insurance. What? Right? Like, it's like mind-blowing, right? And I think, how can they do this? Well, because they are organized differently, arranged differently. And honestly, if you get in trouble, your insurance policy, your, your savings account is like a family member. That's just, so you've got, I mean, you, to get into, you've got to get back into that kind of world. And so you've got to get a little curious about these laws, do a little time travel, uh, and, and as I said last week, in some of the law, God is, is very much accommodating a broken people. That's why some of it gets really confusing. But underneath all the laws, I think, is a wisdom pointing us to a flourishing life. That's, the law is a gift. The Bible is clear on that. And so God is trying, again, to form Israel to be a different kind of people. They were formed under the oppression of Pharaoh in Egypt, and now he's calling them to learn a new way of being human. And again, as I've been trying to do in this series, and we'll do it again today, we can take Deuteronomy as it is, and it's amazing on its own. It just, it is. It's just an incredible book. But as Christians, if we read it in the light of Jesus, if we continue to journey through Deuteronomy in the Old Testament with Jesus as our, our guide, I'm, I'm telling you, it just gets better and better and better. <laughs> Jesus makes everything better. And so we've been trying to do that as well. Now, when I started the Deuteronomy series, I, I kind of had a feeling I would look at the section we're going to look at it, but I kind of thought I would do a Sunday going all the way through Deuteronomy 17 and most of chapter 18. In this part of the law code, uh, Moses is giving Israel kind of their, their primary leadership structure. And so he's going to walk through they're going to have judges, and, and they're, they're similar to what you might initially think of as a judge, but really keep reading through Joshua and Judges in the Old Testament, and you'll gain a better understanding of what Moses means as judge. And then the passage we're going to look at, as I already told you, with the king, and then he's going to talk about the priests and the prophets, and all four, like no one person could hold all these offices, <laughs> But I was excited about this passage because, of course, as we, and I've, I could, at verses I even looked up, I was like ready to do this. I, I thought it would be cool to look at these offices and then show you how no one person in the history of Israel could do this except Jesus does, right? Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the one who is judge, king, prophet, and priest. That's why when Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, he means that on so many different levels. But... As I was reading through the text this week, I just could not get past this section on the king. Uh, I've read it many times, but this week I just, I actually, I was, I was so surprised that, that this is what's in Deuteronomy. Uh, it's so awesome and so preparatory for Jesus. So we're going to just hang out in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. Well, actually, that's not true. We're going to start there. That's, we'll, we'll look at some other verses, but... If you want to join with me, if you want to turn, or you can follow along, 
Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. Again, we're in the midst of this law code. You are about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. We could probably do a whole sermon on this verse. I mean, even if we want to get into the mind of an ancient Israelite, I mean, that is the mentality. The land is what God has given them. It's it's even one of the foundational points for why would they obey this law in this land? Well, because it's all come as gift. God is giving this gift to them, and so he's going to tell them how to rule the land and how to share the land and how, like, even in years of jubilee, if people lose their land, how they'll get their land back. I mean, again, it's an arrangement that we've never seen in world history. It's what God prescribed. Israel was a little too rebellious to do this. We'll even get a taste of that as we walk through this text this morning. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. This becomes the rub for Israel down the road. God has no problem with them. He's prepared for them to ask for a king. But Israel's problem, and we'll get into this, Israel's problem is they want a king like the other nations. But the character of the kingdom is going to reflect the character of the king. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God's people is not supposed to look anything like the other nations. So your king cannot look like the surrounding nations' kings. That's going to be the problem. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. Now, what we're going to read is a remarkable passage, not because it authorizes an eventual kingship in Israel, but because of the countercultural paradigm for a kingship it promotes. Again, if you've been reading from the beginning of the Bible, by the time you get to Deuteronomy, uh, Abraham and Sarah were told kings would come from them. Uh, even as Jacob is giving this amazing poem at the end of Genesis, we are, it's clear that kings are going to come from Judah, right? Which is good news for those of us who are Christ followers. And so we're not surprised that kings will come. Israel isn't going to start with a king, but we're not surprised that kings will come. But the kind of king, the kind of king is the radical part. Verse 16. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself. Or send his people to Egypt to buy horses, for the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. Don't undo the exodus. I freed you from that slavery. Don't go back. All kinds of parallels. Christ has freed us from our sin. Don't return to it. I mean, there's... The king must not take many wives for himself, because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth and silver or gold for himself. The king that they are to have is to be as unlike the kings of other nations as one can imagine. Because Israel is meant to be a light that other nations look at and say, no one lives like that. No one has organized themselves like that. We have never seen a people like you. We want to come to Jerusalem and learn from your God how to flourish, what true life really is. That's this driving piece of the role of Israel throughout the story of the Old Testament. And I'll walk you through these verses, but the Israelite king, 
that, that Moses, that God is preparing the people for, is going to do the opposite of all conventional wisdoms for a king. So don't multiply horses. Well, again, we got to do a little time travel. What does that mean? In the ancient Near East, your tanks were your horses. <laughs> That's what they represented. And so, so, so hear this. God's saying, don't build up your military. Keep it really small. Don't multiply wives. You, you need to stay, your allegiance is to Yahweh, to God and God alone. Don't, what is multiplying wives? Well, that would be your, of course, time travel. That's your political alliances. That's your networking. God says don't do that. And don't amass a lot of money. So let's say it the other way. What does every other king do? Every other king builds a big army, builds political alliances, and builds a big economic storehouse. Why would you do that? Well, I, I mean, conventional wisdom. It makes sense, right? Because you want to be secure, you want to be well-networked, and you want to be funded. I mean, is he, is he, is he, read that. Yeah, well, yeah, of course a king would do that. But, again, this is this unconventional, upside-down wisdom from God that Israelite kings are to do the opposite. I think some of it is because to be a king in Israel, you absolutely have to have faith in God. <laughs> and being this kind of king demands faith, does it not? I mean, absolutely does. Um, it, it, what this does, and, and we're going to lean into this as we journey this morning, but this creates a king and a kingdom that is, that is vulnerable. It feels a little insecure, doesn't it? It's, um, we're going to talk about vulnerability. You're, you're less networked. You're without abundant financial resources. And, and, and God says, build that kind of kingdom. That's what God says. This may even be the precursor when Jesus is having that famous conversation with Pilate in John chapter 19. What does Jesus say? My kingdom is not of this world. <laughs> That's, you, this, is, this is a kingdom that is not of this world all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And then, I, I, you know, a king has many responsibilities, but Deuteronomy is going to give him one, really, that will flow into many. But Verse 18, when he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. So again, he's doing this in community, but, but one of the things the king of Israel will do is he will write out the whole law. Because what did we say last week? The law was meant, it's, it's something that we meditate on. We revisit again and again. We're, we're looking for the underlying wisdom that leads to life, that God is pointing us to in the law. And so the king, I, I mean, part of his meditating on the law is writing it out in his own handwriting. And as he does, and as he has questions, he's there with the Levitical priests, and they can have great conversations together as they journey to lead Israel. Verse 19, he must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. The king of Israel is to read the law of God every day of his life. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God. He will have a reverence for God and he will be aware of the consequences of what would happen if you go outside of the will of God. He will obey all the terms and these instructions and decrees. Meditating on the law every day. 
And so the fear of God will, will lead him to obey God. And even in some kind of like crazy things, some behaviors that other kings aren't doing, but this king will do. And it will also produce in him a, a humility. This regular reading will prevent him. This is, this is also radical. <laughs> prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It's, it's meant to keep the king humble. It will prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way, reading on the law of God every day. And it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. Again, it's a, it's a picture of flourishing. How will Israel flourish if they have a king that God has selected, who, who lives out the law, reads it every day, meditates on it in, with, with, the, uh, with the Levitical priests? And he's humble, and he doesn't view himself as better than his brothers and sisters, right? That's that's what this king will do. It's a little humorous, maybe, to even imagine the king of Moab and the king of Ammon and the king of Israel getting together. And the king of Moab's like, man, I I I just bought this whole herd of majestic horses. I'm so excited. I feel so safe and secure. And the king of Ammon's like, I just, I just got three new wives. I just feel like I've just I've stretched out. I mean, we're just, we have more alliances now. I just feel so safe and secure. And the king of Israel's like, I've been meditating for months on this law. Listen to this. I trust in my God. I feel so safe and secure. Just radically different kind of king. This is a king who does not exalt himself above his fellow Israelites, but rules as one of the people. One of my favorite definitions for leadership is that leadership begins the moment you are more concerned about others flourishing than you are about your own. I think that would have been true of the king of Israel, at least this kind of king, one who does not consider himself better than his brothers or sisters. But what I want you to see is that this is a contrast kingdom. And again, if the character of the king shapes the character of the kingdom, then if this is your king, what kind of kingdom will you have? <laughs> I mean, that's the grand question that, I mean, reading through, you always wanted to know in the Old Testament. It never happens, right? Because Israel is rebellious. But that's what you get. Now, even as I was studying and reading through Deuteronomy 17, I think in two or three places, people connected it to Psalm 72. So, Just as we're trying to even flesh this out a little bit more, I just want to read through Psalm 72. It's 20 20 verses. I want you to hear this. It's kind of this, it's kind of an idealized view. It's connected to Solomon, and it's, it's an idealized view of what the king is supposed to be. I think this Deuteronomy 17 kind of king who does not consider himself above those he's ruling over again, it takes us very, very special, humble kind of person. And you'll see as we read through this that the psalm is a, is a celebration of the king. It's kind of a prayer for flourishing for the king and for the nation. But it's deeply tied to the king caring for those who are on the bottom in his kingdom. That's how it reads. Verse 70, psalm 72, Give your love of justice to the king, O God, and righteousness to the king's son. So what does this mean? Help him judge your people in the right way. Let the poor always be treated fairly. 
May the mountains yield prosperity for all, and may the hills be fruitful. Creation will rejoice. I mean, it almost echoes Romans 8, if you've ever read through Romans 8. Creation will rejoice when humanity is living out its calling from God. Help him to defend the poor, to rescue the children of the needy, and to crush their oppressors. May they fear you as long as the sun shines, as long as the moon remains in the sky. Yes, forever. May the king's rule be refreshing like spring rain on freshly cut grass, like the showers that water the earth. May all the godly flourish during his reign. You hear this, right? May there be abundant prosperity until the moon is no more. What a great line. May he reign from sea to sea. I mean, what a kingdom. From the Euphrates rivers to the ends of the earth, desert nomads will bow before him. I mean, this is a king of kings. His enemies will fall before him in the dust. The western kings of Tarshish and other distant lands will bring him tribute. The eastern kings of Sheba and Seba will bring him gifts. All kings will bow before him and all nations will serve him. I mean, what a, what a scope this psalm is pointing to. I love verse 12. He will rescue the poor when they cry to him. He will help the oppressed who have no one to defend them. He feels pity for the weak and the needy and he will rescue them. He will redeem them from oppression and violence for their lives are precious to him. And then a celebration. Long live the king. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. May the people always pray for him and bless him all day long. May there be abundant grain throughout the land flourishing. Again, flourishing even on the hilltops. May the fruit trees flourish like the trees of Lebanon. And may the people thrive like grass in a field. May the king's name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun shines. I mean, this is a kingdom that has no end. I mean, it just this, I mean, poetry leads you down these incredible roads, right? May all nations be blessed through him and bring him praise. And then, you know, just an acknowledgement, praise the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone, who else does? No one, that's one of the things that's come out. No one is like our God. Who else does? Only our God. Praise his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. It's a beautiful psalm. It's a picture of a king who, again, doesn't consider himself above. In fact, he's looking for those who are at the bottom of his kingdom to lift them up. And as he does so, all of creation flourishes. I actually just wanted to reread verses 12 to 14 because we're going we're gonna to turn our eyes to Jesus, right? I mean, you've been feeling it. You can't not feel this, right? So Jesus is our king. He's king of kings and Lord of lords. His reign will never end, and it covers from sea to shining sea and beyond, right? Like the galaxy, right? I mean, it's, it's all his. It's his to give as a gift as he chooses, right? It's all he's the true king. And so he's your king, and I, w- I want you to think about, I mean, again, we don't live with a king, but think about, he, you, you have a king, you have a Lord, and what kind of king would you want? Verses 12 to 14, let me read these again. Maybe, maybe you're in a tough place this morning. I want you to just hear this as good news. This is a description of the ideal king, but this is your king, <laughs> Jesus is the fulfillment of this. He will rescue the poor when they cry to him. You crying out to Jesus. He will. He may not do it the way you think he will, but he will rescue you. He will. He will help the oppressed who have no one to defend them. He feels pity for the weak and the needy, and he will rescue them. 
He will redeem them. He will redeem you from oppression and violence. And I love this. Your lives are precious to him. He does not rule you unaware of who you are. Your your life is precious to him. Right? Jesus went, we'll talk about this. Jesus went to the cross because your life is precious to him. He is a king who is coming, who has come He's coming to rescue you. So cry out. If that's, I mean, if you need to be rescued, I mean, just in, as we worship this morning, make sure you're crying out to Jesus. This is your king. So Jesus is the true judge. If you read through all of Deuteronomy 17 and 18, he's the true judge. He's the true priest. He's the true prophet. But he's, he is the true king. And the gospels, as we get them, focus on this this, this kingship probably more than the others. So I wanted to read to you the gospel account of when Jesus, our king, becomes king. Again, because we're talking about a kingdom that's not of this world, and we're talking about a king who doesn't operate by the conventional wisdom of the other Caesars and pharaohs of the world. So let me remind you how Jesus becomes king, Matthew 27, verse 27. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. This is is Jesus' Psalm 72 is a coronation psalm. This is Jesus' coronation moment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And they wove thorn branches into a crown and they put it, but they didn't set it, they smashed it on his head so it bled even more. And they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a, as a mocking scepter. And then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. And to welcome him into his new kingship, they spit on him and grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. And when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him again. And they led him away to be crucified, which is the enthronement of our king. Jesus on the cross is when Jesus sits upon the throne. The Roman soldiers did what they did to Jesus as a cruel mockery. Nevertheless, this is the true coronation of the world's true king. This is the royal pageant for the king of kings. His acclaim is by insult. His crown is made of thorns. His scepter is a reed. The homage paid him is done in mockery. His possession is to carry his cross through town, and his throne will be that very cross. And it's awful. But, 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 it's also paradoxically glorious. For this is how Jesus Christ became King of Kings. This is how God's kingdom of love entered into a cruel world energized by hate. And you and I need to remember that how Jesus became king on Good Friday is how his kingdom still comes today. The character of the kingdom always reflects the character of the king, and his kingdom still comes by co-suffering love, a willingness to be vulnerable expressed in forgiveness. Part of walking through this journey is, is to, to, to remind us that God has been telling us from the beginning not to be enamored by the way of Pharaoh and not to be enamored by the way of Caesar, ancient or modern. 
for it has nothing to do with how the kingdom of God comes. Let's press a little bit farther with this because I think, because I think we are enamored by the ways of Pharaoh and the ways of Caesar. And there's a lot of unlearning and unscripting that has to, we have to be formed into a different kind of people. And I was thinking about this idea in Deuteronomy 17 at the end where, the, where the, this king really does humble himself. He doesn't set himself above those in his kingdom. I mean, Jesus' coronation, I mean, his enthronement on the cross is radical enough. But, but then I was thinking about his teachings. What Jesus says to counter our desires to be on top, that he literally kind of says we need to become the lowest if we're going to enter into his kingdom. (laughs) Because as as we say frequently, life is not a game to be won. We're not trying to climb this ladder and get above everyone else. No, life is a gift to be lived. It comes as a gift from God. And Jesus is instructing us on how to enter his kingdom. So the first slide I have is just a very kind of generic Matthew 5, Luke 6, God blesses blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. The kingdom is theirs. God blesses you who are poor. The kingdom is is yours. So he's highlighting the destitute, the down and out. But he goes farther than that. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. One of the things, I mean, and this is maybe, I don't know, I was trying to think, is there a more radical shift in our world today? In Jesus' day, children had no status. I mean, the bottom rung would be children and slaves, really, right? Children had no status. Now, in our day, we worship children. (laughs) But in Jesus' day, they had no status. And so when Jesus says something like he says here in verse 14, let the children come to me and don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. I mean, there's lots of ways that we can try to understand that metaphor from Jesus because there's so much to learn from children and their faith. But one of those is to abandon all status. (laughs) All need to try to be above others. And that's how you enter into the kingdom. Or how about Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45? I don't think Jesus could be clearer than this. You already have his example in John chapter 13. When he washes, he takes on the role of a slave and washes his disciples' feet. But, but he says things like this in his ministry. You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people. I mean, again, this is, this is conventional wisdom. You lord it over and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. That's, that's conventional wisdom. But I've been telling you this since Deuteronomy 17. Among you, it's going to be different. (laughs) Because whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. I mean, if you can't see that Jesus is rearranging things, that the kingdom of God really is not of this world, you're not hearing Jesus. And you're not seeing Jesus, because what does he say in verse 45? Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life away as a ransom for many. If the kingdom of God belongs to the destitute, the children, and slaves, then others can enter the kingdom only by accepting the same lack of status. And the kingdom of God then makes all equal by requiring all to come down to the level of the lowest. 
I said this last week, but the kingdom is not a rearranging where we all become masters of ourselves. No, we all become willingly, that's the freedom part, because we've been loved and compelled by the love of God and we see, we trust that this leads to life. We become slaves and servants to one another <laughs> and we all take the place of the lowest and then, and then we are a light in the world. And everyone says, who lives like this? How can you do this? Now, Again, the law points us in this direction. It never really gets Israel there, but if we were to read, if we were to do a, a whole look at the New Testament, Paul will say the law is a gift and it's good, but it's weak. But now that Christ has come and died for our sins and rose again, now that he reigns as king and the spirit has been poured out upon us, new opportunities are available to us that never were before. And there really is the sense from Paul that the fruit of the Spirit will bear this kind of heart, this kind of character, this kind of community. And maybe just maybe Crossview can follow the leadership of our King to this kind of community where we don't jockey for position. I mean, I think we really are on our way there, but, but we're always being led there, right? To love as Jesus loved us and to serve as we've been served. Maybe one more angle on this, and actually, if, if this, I'm just going to say a little bit, but if this interests you, Andy Crouch has a book called The Strong and the Weak uh, that he really walks through this. It's where I really learned a lot of this. But one of the things I've been saying frequently, even if you have been a part of Formed this week, we talked about how mature Christians hold things in tension. And, I, and Crouch makes a compelling argument, and I just... I just went there as I was reading through this text, but flourishing, flourishing in God's world comes through holding the tension of authority and vulnerability. And I think that's where some of this countercultural, non-conventional wisdom of the kingdom, I mean, I hope you've seen it as we've read through these texts, but, but you and I are often like the kings, the pharaohs, and the Caesars, trying to obtain as much authority as we can so we never have to be vulnerable. <laughs> and I'm just going to tell you that only leads to death. And if we're going to really awaken to this flourishing life that Jesus is inviting us into, we have to find ways to calibrate authority with vulnerability. We have all kinds of authority because Christ holds it all. <laughs> so we're not short of authority, but we have to learn how to access, I mean, in a lot of ways, we access his authority through vulnerability, through the way of love, self-giving, co-suffering love. We have to learn how to hold these things in tension. Um, we, we want to be a flourishing people who live out this divine blend of authority and vulnerability. And I think actually living in America today makes it harder because we do live in the most powerful nation in the world. And we can get drunk on power and drunk on authority. And we can get scripted into the ways of the pharaohs and the Caesars who have always been. Or we can follow Jesus into a radically it's a kingdom that's not of this world, but it's the most powerful kingdom. It's the enduring kingdom. It's the only one that will go across all nations. Jesus' kingdom is different, and I think it's one of the many reasons he calls us to repent, because we need to, repenting in many ways is just rethinking everything in light of Jesus. 
So we, we rethink everything in light of our king. Now, it's interesting. I, I was reading about kings and powerful men, and I am not, I am not a Napoleon expert at all. I know very, actually, I know very little about Napoleon. But I came across this quote. It's not just from some random internet site. It was from a book from a trusted source. I always get a little worried when there's like recorded speeches from historical figures, how accurate they are. But, but, but this, again, a reputable source has Napoleon exiled on the rock of St. Helena. And there the conqueror of civilized Europe had time to reflect on the measure of his accomplishments. And it says he called Count Montholon to his side and asked him, Can you tell me who Jesus Christ was? And the count declined to respond. So Napoleon said this, Well, then I will tell you, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded great empires. But upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this very day, millions will die for him. I think I understand something of human nature, and I tell you, all these were men, and I am a man. None else is like him. Jesus Christ was more than man. I have inspired multitudes with such an enthusiastic devotion that they would have died for me. But to do this, it was necessary that I should be visibly present with the electric influence of my looks and my words and of my voice. When I saw men and spoke to them, I lighted up the flame of self-devotion in their hearts. But Christ alone has succeeded in so raising the mind of man toward the unseen that it becomes insensible to the barriers of time and space. Across a chasm of 1,800 years, Jesus Christ makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. He asks for that which a philosopher may often seek in vain at the hands of his friends or a father of his children or a bride of her spouse or a man of his brother. He asks for the human heart, and he will have it entirely to himself. He demands it unconditionally, and forthwith his demand is granted." Wonderful! In defiance of time and space, the soul of man with all its powers and faculties becomes an annexation to the empire of Christ. (laughs) I thought that was an interesting reflection from Napoleon, a man who was scripted to be like all the other Caesars and Pharaohs. And as he reflects, even he acknowledges there's no one like Jesus. And his empire is like none we've ever seen. It's greater than any that have come before (laughs) And it's the empire that will reign forever. You know, here at Crossview, we celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the story of how Jesus of Nazareth became king of the world. And Jesus is not an optional king. He's the only true king. He's a king unlike what anyone expected. Even in his day, John the Baptist, could you really be the king? His own family, what are you saying? (laughs) Because their concept of a king was defined by pharaohs and Caesars. But Jesus is a king that didn't rule by violence or force or coercion. And we confess Jesus is the only true king because we believe the Father vindicated and raised him on the third day, right? The story of the crucifixion is not the end. The end is the empty tomb and the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of power. 
To live as a Christian is to live under the reign of Jesus here and now. So believe, church. Believe this wild, outlandish, crazy announcement that even as I announce it to you, the Spirit bears witness in your heart that I'm telling you the truth. (laughs) That this particular Jew born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, who went through Galilee announcing the government and politics of God, who was betrayed by his own people and condemned and crucified by the Romans, God has raised him from the dead and has made him to be king of kings and lord over all the nations. Believe that and then be baptized in his name so that you might belong to that kingdom. Satisfy your your idols of power and your need for status and, and come and be a servant with other servants in his kingdom. Begin to learn to live under the reign of Jesus. It's a hard thing to do. But you don't have to do it alone. You'll have a whole community of Levitical priests around you helping you understand this. There are others here with you that are trying to learn the same thing. And together we will resist Babylon. We call modern day Babylon. We will will resist the powers and the principalities. We will resist the world being run the way it's always been run. And we will confess that Jesus is king now. And we will follow him as he he turns things upside down in his name. Amen?